our brothers and sisters is being persecuted in places all around the world. It's dangerous, if not illegal, to be a Christian in those places. It's dangerous, if not illegal, to own a Bible and to share the gospel. Much of the Islamic world and the communistic world. In fact, I came across an article this week from the Gospel Coalition that lists North Korea as the most dangerous and difficult place on earth to be a Christ follower. And yet there in North Korea, there are an estimated 300,000 plus followers of Jesus living out their faith under the threat of the government. Right there in that article, they listed 10, what they call the top 10 most dangerous places to be a follower of Jesus. In the top 10, next to North Korea, are Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, and India. In fact, there are regular reports coming out from India these days where pastors are being imprisoned and their families and their churches suffering greatly as Hindu radicalism continues to increase. You know, when you read stories like that, when you hear the reports of how our brothers and sisters are suffering and being persecuted and facing hardship where churches literally in China are being bulldozed over by the government, when we hear of Christians in dangerous and difficult places holding on to their faith, we just have to ask the question, how are they able to do this? Why do these believers refuse to give up their convictions or at least just internalize them? That's what we're encouraged and, if not, pressured to do in America. Let's just not be fanatical about our faith. Let's internalize it. Let's make it a personal faith. But that's not what we see among the church of the world. I think the answer to the question is the simple word conviction. Conviction leads them. It compels them to go and to live it out. Their strong beliefs in the Bible, their strong beliefs in the gospel, and its proclamation compels them to live out the gospel in their lives. Reminds me of an old Aaron Tippin song from the 80s because I love country music and I for sure love the 80s and 90s country music. But if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. The song rings so true in so many places in our lives, but it rings true especially when it comes to the gospel. You see, while the persecuted church faces the fires of the enemy, it thrives and it continues to advance the kingdom of God. We've seen that all throughout church history. Anytime the enemy seeks to put out the movement of God, all the enemy does is spread and fan the flames of God. As China's Communist Party destroys church buildings and detains pastors, the gospel flourishes in the underground church there. In fact, they're saying now that China is quickly on track to become the nation with the world's largest Christian population. The believers who make up the churches in these difficult places, they are unyielding in their faith. They refuse to compromise. Instead of shrinking back, what we're seeing in our brothers and sisters is that they are standing up for truth as they stand against the attacks of the enemy. So for the next few moments, I want to ask you to just bow your heads and join me as we pray for our brothers and sisters in dangerous and difficult places today. Father, we thank you that you are king of all kings, Lord of all lords. And even as we will read here in Revelation 2, verse 12, in just a moment, you are the one who holds the two-edged sword in your hand. You have power over governments. And God, we know that you love your people. 
We know, we know that you love your bride and that you are there providing, protecting, guiding, directing, and blessing. But God, we also know that we have brothers and sisters who this morning know that to be true, but it just doesn't feel like that because it's so hard and difficult where they live. Lord, we pray that you would bless your church. We pray that you would strengthen your church. God, we pray that they would know your power and your might. God, that you would encourage them. Lord, encourage us here in America where it's not so difficult to understand the great need and to pray for them. Lord, to do what's necessary to provide for them. I'm reminded of how Paul was traveling around, or as he traveled around, he was collecting money to send back to believers, to brothers and sisters in Israel who were struggling. Because of the gospel, they had been ostracized and lost nearly everything, if not everything. And so, Father, help us as your bride here in America to pray for, to care for, and to provide for those in dangerous and difficult places. We lift them before you this morning. And God, we ask your blessings upon them. We don't ask that you would remove them necessarily from the fight, but God, that you would sustain them in the fight. And may you be victorious in it all as you bless your church. We ask and pray this in the name, as Pastor Nick said, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. It's fitting that we would uh, talk about the persecuted church, or at least lead with that this morning like we did a few weeks ago, because as we walk through the, these letters to these seven churches, what we see in nearly every situation is that the church there in these cities are facing persecution. They're facing hardship. They're facing tough times and difficulty. As we will see here at the city of Pergamon, the believers there had even experienced a martyrdom. One of their own had been executed because of the gospel. And so we learn something about what it means to follow Jesus as we read these letters to these churches. We learn the dangers, but we also learn the amazing and glorious provisions of God while in the fight. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The words to the church there at Pergamum. About 70 miles north of Smyrna, 15 miles inland off the Aegean Sea, we find this magnificent city of Pergamum with a citadel that rose 1,300 feet above the plain of the Caicos River and a major city at its, at its base. 
This was a beautiful architectural city. In fact, the architectural innovations further set this city apart from the other cities in the region. These were championed by Jimenez II, who built up the Acropolis, adding a circuit wall, a temple to Athena, a great altar to Zeus, and a library that held 200,000-plus volumes. So along with Athens and the city of Alexandria, Pergamum became a major intellectual center in the Roman Empire. Pergamum was also not only an intellectual center, it was a religious center. As what we're seeing in these letters is is that religion was a big deal in all of these places. Here's here's something we need to understand this morning. Religion or spirituality is a big deal to all of us. Why? We're created to worship. God created us to worship, so we will worship something or someone. And so Pergamum was no different. It was a leading religious center there in the province of Asia. Temples and altars and shrines were dedicated to Zeus, who they acclaimed as the king of the gods. Temples, altars, and shrines also were dedicated to Athena, who was the goddess of victory and also the patron god of the city. Dionysius, the patron god of the dynasty, was there, and he was symbolized by a bull. And so this was big in the religious worship of the city. And then there was the god Asclepius, the god of healing. He's symbolized by a serpent. A huge area of the city was dedicated to Asclepius and, and the healing arts. In fact, history tells us that Galen, one of the most famous physicians of the ancient world, was a native of the city of Pergamon, and he studied there. As a result, Pergamum, as you can think, as you can imagine, became a hub of, of medical research, a place for medical help. The serpent that symbolized Asclepius is the same serpent that symbolizes our medicine to this day. Greatest concern for Christians living in Pergamum was the fact that it was the official center in Asia for, again, imperial worship, emperor worship. It was the city, the first city in Asia to receive permission from Rome to build a dedicated temple to the worship of a living ruler. We saw earlier as we looked at Smyrna and Ephesus that they also had this emphasis, but Pergamon was a little bit different. They held the first temple dedicated to a living emperor, not just someone in the past. 29 B.C., Augustus granted permission for this temple to be erected in Pergamum to the, and I quote, the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. So emperor worship was linked, not just in their religious actions, but it was linked to civic loyalty and even to patriotism. So if to refuse to participate was not only godless action, but also a subversive action toward the government. Christians, due to their rejection of the Roman gods, as I've already said in previous weeks, were called atheists because they did not believe in the gods of Rome. They did not worship the gods of Rome. And so they were called and and reflected upon as being atheists, but also they were accused of hatred of the human race because they refused to show political loyalty to the emperor, which meant also that they refused to show political loyalty to the people of Rome. So it was a double whammy. This environment made life difficult for Christ followers. Pergamon was the provincial capital there in Asia. And so the proconsul held the right of the sword, or he held the power to execute. So into this scene, Jesus here reminds the Pergamon believers that he is the one, look at verse 12, he is the one who holds the two-edged sword in his hand. 
All the pro-council and the government may have the right and the authority to put you to death, but God Almighty, Jesus Christ himself, he holds the two-edged sword over the throats of even the governor. He's the judge. Ultimate power belongs to God, and nothing the Roman pagans do will change that. So just as Jesus told the Ephesians and the Smyrnians, Smyrnians, he tells the Pergamum believers that he knows. Look there what he says, verse 13. I know where you dwell. I know. It's the same word that we've seen in the other letters. Oida is the Greek word. It speaks of complete and full knowledge. Rather than gnosko, it speaks of a, a progressive knowledge where God is learning about their situation. Here's what God says to the Pergamons. He says, I know exactly what's going on in your life. I know where you live. I know what's going on there. I know the threats against you. I know the hardships and the difficulties. I know the pains and the sufferings. I know your anxieties and your fear. I know what's going on in your life. Today, that's good news for us. He knows what's going on in our life, what we're facing, and what's challenging us. Three aspects to this situation which the Lord was fully aware of. First, he, he knew the pagan world in which they lived. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The Pergamon believers here dwelled among these people, these pagan worshipers of idols. See, this was not a city and an environment that they visited and soon left. No, they lived in this place day in and day out, facing and experiencing the threat and the oppression and the dangers of living in that sort of culture. There's been many times where I've traveled into a city or perhaps traveled to a foreign country and you get off the plane and you get out of the car and you get there and you just begin to sense this oppression, you begin to sense this darkness, you begin to sense the difficulties and the challenges that come against you and in each and every case I've always had the understanding, thankfully, that this is not my home, I'm passing through, I will get to go home sometime. It's not where I have to dwell. I may have to endure it for 10 days. I may have to experience it for a short time, but I get to go home. That was not the case for the Pergamon believers. They lived there. They dwelled there. And Jesus says, this is where Satan's throne is. It's a hard, hard place. The second area of Christ's knowledge centered on the faithfulness of the Pergamon believers. You see, in spite of the difficulties, they continued, as Jesus says, to hold fast or to remain faithful. The verb here is in the present tense. Literally, it means, this verb means to grasp forcibly or in its figurative use, to remain firm. And Jesus here did not commend them because they had been faithful. He commended them for continuing to be faithful to his name. You continue to hold fast to my name. Read this, and I have the picture that goes through my head. It's almost like they're being held over the cliff of persecution, the cliff of hardship. And rather than letting go, they continue to hold on to Jesus despite the hardships. The third area of Christ's knowledge adds further details to this past refusal to renounce Christ. You see that the Pergamon believers had not turned away from Jesus, as he says, even when Antipas, his faithful witness, was executed. Now, we don't know anything other than what the biblical record gives us here in this verse about Antipas or his execution. Robert Mounts, in his commentary, points out that a legend appears among later hagiographers that Antipas was slowly, listen to this, slowly roasted to death in a brazen bowl during the reign of Domitian. That's legend. We don't know if that's true or not. 
more than likely he faced some sort of major, difficult, scary, fearful type of execution to scare the other believers. So this more than, it very well could have been how he was put to death, but we don't know for sure. For sure. What we do know is that according to Jesus, Antipas was his faithful witness unto death. And the Pergamon believers, in the face of his execution, continued to remain faithful. And so Jesus commends them for this. Well done, my faithful good, my, my good and faithful servants. You've done well. You've continued to hold on to me. Even in the face of the fire, you continue to pursue me. You continue to proclaim the gospel. Like the Ephesian believers... Who were, who were rebuked despite their faithfulness. Here we also see as we move down through the text that the Pergamon believers were also guilty before the Lord. See, whereas, whereas the Ephesians identified and opposed the Nicolaitan heresy, the church there in Pergamon, as we read, tolerated this heresy. A party had apparently arisen from within or, or somehow been allowed to come from without the church who held to the teaching of Balaam and the practices of the Nicolaitans. In order to understand the reference to Balaam, we've got to travel back in time in Jewish history to Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers 31. If you remember the story of Balaam, Balaam is this Gentile prophet who's been hired by Balak, the king of Moab. So Israel has now come out of Egypt. They've been traveling through the wilderness for these several years because of their disobedience. They're in this 40-year journey. They're moving their way little by little toward the promised land. God's giving them victory along the way. And so Balaam, not, not Balaam, Balak is scared that he's going to lose his kingdom because he's seen other kingdoms topple under the, the, uh, the, the, the military might and the favor of God. And so he enlists this Gentile prophet to stand up on a cliff four different times to look over the people of Israel as they travel through the valley and to curse them. Balaam every single time says, I can only say what God leads me to say. I can only do what God tells me to do. And so four different times Balaam is supposed to pronounce a curse over Israel, but instead he pronounces a blessing over them. And then finally, Balak gives up. So you've got this Gentile prophet who's working for money, who, he's for hire, and he pronounces, rather than curse, he pronounces blessings over the people of God. You would think if that was the end of the story, Balaam would go down in Jewish history as a faithful man of God, wouldn't he? He said, I can only say what God tells me to say. He said what God told him to say. It seems like he would have been a faithful man of God. But in Numbers chapter 31, we see where Moses attributes the the rebellion that happens in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, Moses attributes it back to Balaam and something that he apparently told Balak there of how to destroy the people of God. Because in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, we see that they are now, they're residing in this location called Shittim. And there they spend some time there. They, uh, they, they begin to intermingle, the men do, with the women. They begin to take them as wives. They begin to have relationships with them. And they begin to take their gods for themselves. So Baal worship becomes their idolatry. And, uh, and the sexual immorality is with the women of Moab. And so this intertwining, this syncretism begins to take place in such a way that God begins to judge them and punish them to put an end. We read, I believe in verse 3 of chapter 25, that 24,000, uh, verse 6 actually, 24,000 men die because of this. 
God actually puts an end to what Balaam has started to do. You say, why would Balaam do that? I, I think he was there for hire. He wanted Balak to get his money's worth, and so he couldn't pronounce a curse. But he says, here's what I know you can do. If you can get your men or, or, and get your women to intermingle with the people of God and begin to get them to believe what they believe, to do what they do, little by little you will accomplish what you set out to do. may not happen today, but in the next generation or perhaps even sooner, the people of God will transgress against their God and judgment will come against them. They will lose their spiritual power. And so that's what's happening in the church of Pergamum as the people of God begin to embrace or at least allow a segment of the church to embrace false teaching that is similar to that which Balaam taught. So what is this Nicolaitanism? We've already touched it a few weeks ago. It's very similar to that of what Balaam taught. And so the language here of the verse suggests that we are not to think of this as another sect, but really as giving further definition to the teaching of Balaam. It's further emphasizing that that's what's taking place in the church. And so Jesus here held these things against the church. And therefore his command was what? Repent. Every time we read through these letters and we see God blessing them and saying, you're doing well, but I have this against you, what is his command? He says, repent. What is our calling? What is our, his command on our lives when God's word begins to speak to us and we begin to hear? What is the command to us? Repent. Turn back to the Lord. The entire church was to repent, to turn from a sin. Think about this, that only a few were actually practicing. Why? Jesus, why would you tell the church to repent? Why would you tell the leaders to lead the church in a place toward a place of repentance? It's because when one sins, in a sense, we all sin. When we embrace something or we allow a small group to embrace something that is false, it's not long until it impacts and influences all. So those guilty of idolatry, those guilty of immorality were commanded to turn from that sin. But for the rest of the church, the command was to turn from their passivity. Turn from your passivity. Turn from not looking toward their sin and dealing with their sin, but instead be active in eradicating it. The sin here of the Ephesians was harsh intolerance. The sin of the Pergamum church was tolerance and laxity. I'd say today in the American church, we are a whole lot like the Pergamum church. We have a tendency to look over the sins of people. I don't want to be judgmental. I don't, want to, I don't feel like I have the right to speak in someone else's life. You absolutely have the right, and you have the calling of God upon your life to speak into your brothers' and sisters' lives. And if we don't do that, we are following in the, in, in the footsteps of Pergamum, who probably started out fine. Oh, I just... I, just didn't really want to get in the way, didn't want to burden them, didn't want to judge them, didn't want to come across as intolerant. But what happens is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So we learn from this letter why we as a church cannot tolerate false teaching, why we should stand for truth. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We must stand against when I make this statement, that's a dangerous statement because the last thing I want to be known for, the last thing I want our church to be known for is what we're against, right? I don't want people to, be, to think of us and be like, oh, that's a church. 
they're a bunch of they're a bunch of fanatical legalists down. That's not what we're talking about at all. I don't want to be known necessarily what I'm against. I'd prefer to be known what I'm for. But with that said, if we're for some things, it also means we're against some things, right? Kind of goes hand in hand, parallel. It runs on the same tracks. So I'm for Jesus and his gospel. I'm against sin and idolatry. I'm for holiness. I'm against worldliness. So this morning, let me share with you just a couple things about why the church stands against false teaching. That's really where it begins. A false teaching or a false understanding of the word of God. And little by little, you wake up one morning, your life is a mess, your family's a mess, your church is a wreck. Why do we stand against false teaching? Number one, we stand because the friend of the world is the enemy of God. A friend of the world is often described, we, we use the term worldly, right, in the, in the church language, the lingo. John MacArthur, I like how he defines the term worldliness. He says it's any preoccupation with or interest in the temporal system of life that places anything perishable before that which is eternal. So MacArthur describes it, worldliness as this. It's when I have my eyes fixed on temporal things of this world and I'm living for them. I'm living for, for what they can satisfy temporally in my life rather than having my eyes fixed on the only one who is eternal and living for him. That's what worldliness is. So what does the Bible have to say about this? John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus very starkly describes for us that when he chose us, he brought us from darkness to light. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away with, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So all of these verses, and we could add to them many, many more. What they teach is, is that as a child of God, I am to live for God. I am to live for Christ. My life has been transformed, changed, radically altered by him. Therefore, I'm to have a new mentality. I'm to have a new perspective. I'm to live for new things in my life. 
The Bible here teaches us that when God calls a person to himself, he calls that individual out of and away from his or her old life of worldly sin and to a new life of righteousness in Christ. A change takes place. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, that the old has passed. Behold, all things have become new. This is what the church is all about. We're about life change. We're about living different. I mean, the, the very Greek word that is used to describe or to, to name what we call the church is ekklesia. You, I'm sure you know this. Ekklesia comes from really two words in the Greek, kaleo, which is the verb to call, and then ek is the preposition, attitude on the front end, to call or to, means out or to come from among. And so what Jesus is doing to us as sinners is he's calling to us, bringing us out of the world and unto himself. So I'm to live different now. The church is to be different now. And when we don't do that, we make ourselves an enemy of God. So we must continually turn from that allurement that we see in the world and its systems, and we must continually turn to Christ and his righteousness. Otherwise, as verse 16 tells us, if not, some of your translations might even say otherwise, we make ourselves an enemy of God and under the danger of his judgment. Here's a statement. Tolerance of worldliness is not to be tolerated. Sometimes in the Christian life, Every single one of us think that we can get so close to the line that we can always get back. What happens with our kids, right? Hey, I don't want you to do that. What do they do? They do everything up to and sometimes even step over the line. You got wet paint. There's a sign that says, don't touch this. This is wet paint. What do you do? I touch. I just want to make sure it's still wet. That's what we do. Hey, there's, here, here's concrete. It's, it's just freshly poured. Don't, don't mess with it. What do we do? We go put our hand in it. We write our names, our initials. That's what we do. Our human nature always wants to press the issue. We want to tolerate as much as we can. We want to get as close to sin as possible without jumping in with both feet. And so we have that tendency to allow that into the church. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be a church that's legalistic, and, and that's not what God is telling us at all. He just says, have nothing to do with sin. Don't tolerate. And the church at Pergamum had become so lax in their commitment to righteousness that they allowed brothers and sisters, or perhaps those who cloaked themselves as brothers and sisters, to teach a false do doctrine. And so we find here a strong argument for doctrinal confession as well as church discipline. We dare not allow anyone in the church who does not profess and display evidence that they are in, in adherence with our church's doctrine. Along with that, we dare not fail to correct doctrinal errors and behaviors of members within the church. If and when we do so, it puts the individual as well as the church in danger. That's why we are called to be our brothers and sisters keeper. So we don't want to allow those who come to our church and say, I don't, know, I don't know if I really believe about that cross thing. I don't know if the blood of Jesus was necessary. I mean, sometimes those are extreme views and we not be cloaked like that. But anything that doesn't add up to the true gospel doctrinal beliefs that we hold should never be a member of our church. And if they're a member of our church that begins to sway in that direction, we go and we try to lovingly correct and bring them back into the fold. Otherwise, we cut ties. We can't both exclusively reside under one roof. Secondly, why do we stand against false teaching? Syncretism erodes the body from within. 
Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So there he's talking about specifically about money, but the principle is the same. You can't have a divided heart. You're either all of Jesus or you're not. You're either committed to the word of God or you're not. You believe in the gospel or you don't. Earlier I alluded to what Paul said in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So this syncretism that we see all throughout Jewish history, even in here in the church, is the intertwining of belief systems. It, <coughs> it always leads to a slow death. So here's what Balaam did, told Balak. Hey, if you will take your women and you will put them in a place where they, uh, I, I don't know, my unsanctified imagination can only imagine what, what actually took place. But he put them in a place where they would attract the attention of the men. All right? So just let your mind go there for a second. The men saw, they pursue. That's what men do with women. We pursue, right? And so they, they fall in headlong with a bunch of pagan women who doesn't just lead them into sexual immorality, but leads them into idolatry. And it didn't just take down the people of God that day. It took a little bit, but eventually it took the people of God down. That's what syncretism does. When we begin to allow the worldly things around us, the teachings of this world, to, to get a foothold into the beliefs that we hold as a church and individuals, it is a slow death for the people of God. They fell prey to syncretism. They're in Shittim, and it was true for the church, church at Pergamum. Here's a statement. Satan was not able to destroy the people of God cataclysmically by coming as a roaring lion, but he was making inroads as the deceiving serpent. He's perfectly okay with that. See, he would love nothing more than to destroy you. He would love nothing more to destroy your faith and that of the others around you. As much as he would love to do it quickly, he is patient and willing to take his time. A subtle implosion of your faith and your testimony is just as good as a drastic explosion. He doesn't care. The result is the same. He'll rather, he, he would rather destroy you perhaps quickly, but he's fine to sit around and allow you to implode from the inside out. So what happened to the nation of Israel. In fact, what I see, what I believe is much more common than the drastic explosion is the subtle implosion. Subtle and minute deviations from God's word today lead to gross and dramatic shifts tomorrow. And so little by little, syncretism erodes away your faith in God's word. And so you cannot, as Jesus says, serve two masters. You cannot serve God and Satan. So what do we do? Psalm 119, verses 36 and 37 tells us, incline, David is saying this, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. We have to constantly refocus our hearts and our minds and our attention on the things of God and God himself. We stand for truth. We stand against heresy because it erodes and destroys our faith by taking our eyes off of God. Third, we stand against false teaching because a rebuke leads to repentance and blessing. Jesus here called the leaders of the church to repent and to call the church to repentance as well. 
He also pointed out to them that rebuke when heeded leads to repentance and blessing. He says, if you do this, if you, if you be one of these conquerors, I'll give you the, the hidden manna. I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. No one understands or knows but you. There's blessings when we turn from our sin to him. The promise for the conquerors here, this hidden manna and this white stone, they, they both uh, are really eschatological or end time symbols related to this messianic feast at the coming of Christ. But also the teaching is that of spiritual food and a new name gives to the believer here in the present as well. There's something that God will bless the people of God with when we will turn to him. That's what Jesus is saying. If you will turn from your sin, turn to me, life will be good for you. Life will be what I want it to be for you. Will it be easy? No, not necessarily. But will it be in the will of God? Absolutely. Will the favor of God be upon your life? Yes, when we walk with him. Will the curse of God be on your life when you walk away from him? Yes, it will. You cannot serve two masters. So we call out error and we call for repentance, not because we hate people. We do it because we love people. We want what is best for their lives, and watching others live in sin without trying to help them get out of it, that is not love. Wednesday in our study on spiritual realities, we were talking about hell, and, and we just got on this conversation about how there's a great need. And if we, if we understand the reality of hell and what the Bible says about it, how can we not share with others? And Ezekiel 3 came to my mind where Ezekiel is really called and commanded by God that if he doesn't say something, if he doesn't become the watchman on the wall that warns of the dangers coming, that the blood of the hands of those who are dying will be on his hands. The same is true for us. We want people to experience the favor and the forgiveness of God. And so we've got to share truth with them. And so discipline is not a bad word. It's actually a loving word. So church discipline is a blessing to both the individual and the church. It preserves holiness and integrity in both. Unfortunately, the church there at Pergamum allowed some in their membership to adopt these heretical beliefs and to practice them. Rather than addressing them head on, the leadership looked the other way, which is pretty common, especially in our culture. I don't know if you've heard, but just a few weeks ago on Sunday, October 27th, the First Baptist Church in Naples, Florida, which is a great church, one of our leading churches in our convention, their pastor is retiring. And so they've been working through the process to call a new pastor, and they had a guy coming as a candidate who's preaching in view of a call, and they voted on him that day. He only got 81% needed 85%. The reason he only got 81% is because there's a small group. This is coming from the leadership of the church and how they're assessing this situation. But apparently they mounted a campaign based on racial disagreements. Marcus Hayes, I believe is his name, the candidate who was in view of a call, is a black man married to a white woman. Apparently there's some in that, that church culture that said we will not have this. They led a grassroots campaign enough to skew the vote by 4%, killing it. Church leadership immediately recognized it for what it was, probably already knew what was going on, recognized it, called it out, called the church to repentance. And I don't know what's going to happen, but for what I'm hearing is that they are willing to do what's necessary to call sin what it is, sin. How dare us, as the people of God, say that one race is greater than the other? How dare us to say that one group of people of whatever makeup, race, 
socioeconomic status, educational background, pedigree. Doesn't who, who are we to say that one is greater than the other? If I understand the gospel correctly, Jew and Gentile, black and white, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. So I'm grateful. I share this only to say this. I'm grateful for a church that knew they were going to be in the headlines and could have just kind of tried to stay in the background. We don't want to cause a, ruff, a ruffle. No, they called sin what it is. In church, that's what we have to do. Lovingly, graciously, thoughtfully, prayerfully, and always looking toward reconciliation. We don't want to hurt people. We don't harm people. We want to see them reconciled and restored. And that's what Jesus is calling the church to do. It's good news in the gospel. It makes the ground level there at the foot of the cross. It means that every person is accepted by God. You see, we share this every, every week. The beauty of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that we've all been created in the image and the likeness of God. He loves us. Man, he loves us. He cares for us. He loves us so much, the Bible tells us that he's done everything necessary to be in relationship with us. You say, why does he, what do you mean he's done everything necessary? Well, the Bible tells us that the, the good news, God loves us, God created us, God has a purpose and a plan for life. The bad news is, is that all of us have rejected and walked away from him. We've turned our nose to what God would have for us. We've rebelled against him. Thus, we're separated from him. We are born into a sinful nature, a sinful lifestyle. And so we're trying to do it our own way, all the while creating more and more brokenness in our lives. But God does not leave us there. The best news of the gospel is that every person, doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, can have forgiveness of sin and an eternal relationship with the God who created them for himself. This past Tuesday, I had an opportunity to go with some of our guys to the, our prison ministry. It was my first time to ever go, sadly to say that. But I had a great time walking in there with guys who don't have no idea what they've done, don't care to know what they've done, shared the gospel and, and tried to just bring clarity to the gospel with them. And it, I, I told one of these guys, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. The Bible tells us that every single person can be forgiven. You can do the worst of the worst things imaginable. And Jesus is there to forgive you because your sin has been paid for by his blood. That is the best news of the gospel. So for our friends in Florida who would rather have a white pastor versus a black pastor, that is sin in their life. But you know what the Bible tells us? That there can be forgiveness for that sin if they will repent and return. And this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. I don't know what's going on in y'all's lives. I may know some. I don't know everything. And here's what I do know. Most of the time, we try to hide as much as possible, Right? We try to wear the fake mask. I joke around all the time on Sunday mornings that you, most of you, if maybe not most, some of you, more than we care, had fights on the way to church this morning. You're trying to get out, especially if you've got kids. You know how that is. You're, you're fussing and scrambling around, and voices are being elevated, and anger is being expressed, and all these things are happening. And you come out of the, your car in the church parking lot, and, hey, brother, you put on the smile, you play the game. Everything's wonderful. Your kids are like, who is this? I don't know who this person is. They're just yelling at me. I understand that. We try to put our best face on. Here's what the Bible tells us. God sees through all that. He knows your thoughts. He knows the things you say. He knows your intentions. He knows what you're going to do later today. 
He knows how you're going to continue to walk away from him. And all of that, he says, to tell us that it is finished, paid in full. All you got to do is come to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. My sin separates you from me from you, but there's forgiveness because of what your word says. Please forgive me. I receive you as Lord and Savior. That's how a person comes into relationship with Jesus. Same thing is true for a Christian who's walking at a guilty distance. Lord Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I'm not living like a Christian. I'm forgiven, but I'm not living that way. I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you cleanse me. God, restore me to what you have for my life and what I know I need. I receive that in my life. It's so simple. So let's respond this morning. Lord, we love you. God, man, we love you. But that so pales in comparison to how much you love us. Lord, we have all walked away from you. We're born into this nature. It comes naturally. And because it comes naturally, we engage in it so often. But God, many of us in this room, we have heard the gospel. We have been awakened to it. Our spirits have been uh, brought to life. We've received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And and we're trying, we're striving to walk in that life. But if we're honest this morning, there are moments, perhaps even this week, where we have blatantly defied you. There's sin in our hearts. There's sin in our lives. Unconfessed sin. Sin that's not been dealt with. And this morning... What you would say to us as your people, what you'd say to your follower of Christ this morning who's walking guilty before you, you would say, come to me and receive forgiveness. So, Lord, I pray for us as believers today that we would not be lax with our sin. We would not be passive with our sin. But, Lord, we would seek to put it to death every single day. God, we seek to put it to death today before we leave this service. Revive us, renew us, restore us. God, I pray for men and women, boys and girls, who would be sitting in this room this morning who have never yet asked for your forgiveness, never received you as Lord and Savior. God, they are still walking in the deadness of their sin. I pray today they would come and say, Jesus, I want, I need what you have. I need life in Jesus. I need forgiveness for my sins. And so I'm following and doing what the Word of God tells me. I am repenting and turning to you. Lord, in just a moment as we open up this altar, I pray that our hearts would receive the Word of God. Our ears are hearing. And God will respond in faith and in repentance. In Jesus' name. Amen.